Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious, because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Do you know where you are? I'm in an endless epic. Well, we're in an endless epic, and here... There, there be dragons. And boys who live. Well, the boy who lived. A singular We don't boy. know if he's going to continue to live yet. Right, it I is I mean, we can tense. assume that he might, considering all the books are named after him, but we'll pretend we don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the Witcher is named The Witcher. Right. But there are all there are multiple witchers. So right, right. It could be a new one each book. Right. It's very unspecific. This could refer to any boy who had past tense lived. Yeah. So I don't know how many Harry Potter specifically there are, but uh, welcome back, friends and companions, to Endless Epic. It has been almost exactly one year since we have uploaded an episode. Of Endless Epic. Really? Yes. Been that long? It's almost been an entire year. Yeah. So, slacking. Yeah. yeah. More than a little bit. That was supposed to be a short hiatus. Short hiatus. Short uh, in the in the sense of people who live three, four hundred years. Like right. the characters we read about, you right. know. Right. Short in the, in the Bilbo Baggins sense. <laughs> And I know you guys requested Harry Potter over and over and over again. I swore up and down I'd never do it. But I was convinced. And the only reason why I was convinced is because the Lady Faye loves Harry Potter. And I more, more than a little bit loathe Harry Potter. <laughs> so if it was just me and my brother... The, the the commentary would be, be like this is garbage, right? The time. Yeah. Now, and since this is the family friendly version, you'll keep me in line with minimal swearing. Well, you shouldn't have any swearing in the family yes, friendly yeah, one, no. if we're being honest. <laughs> but these books, it can be. You know, I can understand why you'd be critical of them, but at the same time, when these came out, they were great for the age group that it was targeting. Because that age group was able to grow with each release of the books as she started changing her writing a little bit. I'm not saying that they got better, but she did gear it more towards an older age. And so there's a whole generation of kids that got to get really attached to these characters and identify with them. So they're great in that sense. They were really fun. And it's brilliantly done. Like, I'm not saying that the... <laughs> The overall of it was, yeah. was a brilliant bit of progress right. as far as the way that the stories developed. Mm -hmm. My biggest issue is that people herald J.K. Rowling as being like one of the greatest writers of all time. And that's it's simply, it's simply not true. Right. Her writing style is, is very tired and repetitive. And I'm not, it's not to say anything about like the, 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 the series as a whole. Right. Because it is iconic, there's a lot of really beautiful things and integrations from mythology and all of that. It's all wonderful. My problem is not so much with Rowling and Harry Potter as much as the people who lift up Harry Potter as you, being some... You don't like her getting compared with like J.R. Tolkien and... C.S. Lewis yeah. and all of these men who... And, and not just men, there are, there are also women who have written series that are incredibly detailed. There are fewer, but mm -hmm. they, they are out there. But being ranked among these... I don't even like Martin being ranked amongst Tolkien and Lewis. I, I'll be honest, I was not a fan of his writing. I gave it a good, like, hundred pages, just because I like to give it a chance, and then I stopped. I it. made it through the first three books before I realized he was writing the same book over and over again. You read three books? I read three books. I couldn't get past the hundred pages. I I'm forced like, myself no. to do it, and I, it was... Like, the world is fascinating, and the, the crazy thing about Martin is that his, his, his world-building is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Like, he's got an excellent history to his world, and that's something that Rowling has as well. She has an excellent history. Right. But their ability to grow and progress characters is terrible. And that's evident in the fact that every character except for their protagonists are more likable than their protagonists. 
Right. And, you know, it, it has its moments. Like, Harry is wildly uninteresting as a protagonist, and his best friend Ron has a far more interesting story and series of growths than Harry does. Right. I haven't read the latter half of the series in a really long time, because I'm still reading them with my son. So, I don't remember his character very much because he didn't really stand out. Some of the other characters really come to mind because they had some, a lot of like coming of age happenings. Whereas his were just kind of, you'd expect it and they were really underwhelming. And even sometimes you're like, why are you being so annoying? <laughs> so I get it. But overall, these books are really fun. The world building made it worthwhile because there wasn't a lot of stuff like this available at the time and at least not ones that got super widespread like I know you like the Spiderwick Chronicles Spiderwick Chronicles um, is pretty good um, I also like the Dragon Knight series um, and even the flight the flight series like the I don't know if you've read the um, the adventures of Septimus Tome nope um, it's like flight uh, fire there's three of them, and they're they're young adult books. Well, they're not even young adult books. I, I think, think they're children's I've books. I've seen them. Yeah, even those tend to have a, a better overall balance between world building and character progress and plot and all of that. Because the biggest problem I have with Harry Potter is that the plot either is contrived or it's entirely obvious. We're really selling this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And again, like, I, I want to emphasize, and throughout the podcast, I'm going to emphasize the points where she does excellent world building, like where it's great historical world building. And she did a lot of that in retrospect, like as the books went along, the world was built better. Right. But that, you know, any young writer, that's going to be well, how they It, it they got write. built better in the sense that when these books were popular, it overshadowed all those other titles that you brought up. Right. The only other series I remember kind of competing at all was Aragon. Yeah. Uh, which I never got around to reading. I have the first book, but I never well, got around to and reading. That, and that's an excellent example, actually, of, of the incredible writing ability of Christopher Paulini. I can never pronounce his last name. I think it's... Pa Paulini? I think it's Paulini. It might be Palanini or some something like that. I don't remember. We're sorry. Yeah, sorry. I, I'm not good with Italian last names. If that's even Italian, I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> <laughs> Just making assumptions over here. But that young man yeah. was—he—he he did incredible world building, character progression, and plot progression. Now his world building was not as iconic as Martin, and as uh, Rowling's was. But right. everything else about the the Inheritance series was better. I didn't read the the last book. Mm. I read the first three, but the last book came out like four years after the second to last book, so I never got around to reading it. Gotcha. But his first three books are incredibly well written. They, they're, they're, they are a next generation of writings influenced by Tolkien and Lewis and that mm -hmm. era of writers. He's, he's, he gives incredible details, his character building is wonderful, Plot progression, plot progression is wonderful, and his while his, some of his plot points are are contrived, they're not in such a way that it was either obvious or, uh, and not contrived. I guess I should say cliche. Right. Uh, as a spoiler, if you haven't read the books, um, one of the characters who we meet fairly early on in the series ends up being like the half brother of Aragorn, mm. and. It's a huge revelation because they both end up being dragon riders and his brother who was his friend up to that point ends up going to like the dark side of the thing. So it's like a huge revelation cool. when it happens. Yeah, that's cool. Well, maybe we'll have to consider those for later down the line. And and that's why and that's why you're here, to make sure that this <laughs> doesn't end up just being a long line of me crapping on the series. Because they are fun. This is a really great series, especially when you're reading it with your kids or listening to it with your kids. But if you do want to read along, for those of you watching the Patreon video, you can see there's this illustrated version of this book. And they did a great job. All of the pages, almost all of the pages, have an illustration included. 
So it's really fun to go through and have these visuals while you're reading with the kiddos, um, or if you just appreciate the artwork as an adult, that too. Um, we could probably leave a link for yeah. it in, uh, in the post. So if you're interested in that and reading along, then go check that out. But I'll be reading from the book because I am uh, stubborn like that. And Mr. Castle has his own copy yes. <laughs> on his phone. He's not I, looking at social media. I, 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 will be, I will be reading from the whimsical Kindle <laughs> version of it. Let's start things off in the traditional way. Here we go. Can opening ASMR? Mm -hmm. Was that part of it? Every, at the start of every Witcher episode, my brother opens a can or something. Well, that, that I expected from your brother. Yeah, that's true. This I guess it. that makes sense. <laughs> you guys are silly. All right. <clears throat> Mr. Dursley was the director of a firm called Grunnings. They made drills. He was a big, beefy man with hardly any neck. Although he did have a very large moustache. Mr. Dursley was... Oh, sorry. Mrs. Dursley was thin... I was about to be like, why is it contradicting itself? This is what I was talking about with the writing. <laughs> Mrs. Dursley was thin and blonde and had nearly twice the usual amount of neck, which came in very useful as she spent most of her time craning over garden fences and spying on the neighbours. The Dursleys had a small son named Dudley. And in their opinion, there was no finer boy anywhere. The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret. And their greatest fear was that somebody would discover it. They did think, they didn't think they could bear it if anyone found out about the Potters. Mrs. Potter was Mrs. Dursley's sister, but they hadn't met for several years. In fact, Mrs. Dursley pretended she didn't have a sister because her sister and her good-for-nothing husband were as undursleyish as it was possible to be. The Dursleys shuddered to think what the neighbours would say if the Potters arrived in the street. The Dursleys knew that the Potters had a small son too, but they had never even seen him. This boy was another good reason for keeping the Potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. When Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke up on the dull grey Tuesday, our story starts. There was nothing about the cloudy sky outside that suggested that strange and mysterious things could soon be happening all over the country. Mr. Dursley hummed as he picked out his most boring tie for work and Mrs. Dursley gossiped away happily as she wrestled a screaming Dudley into his high chair. None of them noticed a large, tawny owl flutter past the window. At half past eight, Mr. Dursley picked up his briefcase, pecked Miss Dursley on the cheek, and tried to kiss Dudley goodbye but missed, because Dudley was now having a tantrum and throwing his cereal at the walls. Little talk chortled Mr. Dursley as he left the house. He got into his car and backed out of Number Four's drive. It was on the corner of the street that he noticed the first sign of something pecu peculiar, a cat reading a map. For a second, Mr. Dursley didn't realize what he had seen. Then he jerked his head around to look again. There was a tabby cat standing on the corner of Privet Drive, but there wasn't a map in sight. What could he have been thinking of? It must have been a trick of the light. Mr. Dursley blinked and stared at the cat. It stared back. As Mr. Dursley drove around the corner and up the road, he watched the cat in his mirror. It was now reading the sign that said Privet Drive. No, looking at the sign. Cats couldn't read maps or signs. Mr. Dursley gave himself a little shake and put the cat out of his mind. As he drove towards town, he thought of nothing except a large order of drills he was hoping to get that day. But on the edge of town, drills were driven out of his mind by something else. 
As he sat in the usual morning traffic jam, he couldn't help but notice that there seemed to be a lot of strangely dressed people about. People in cloaks. Mr. Dursley couldn't bear people who dressed in funny clothes. The get-ups you saw on young people. He supposed this was some stupid new fashion. He drummed his fingers on the steering wheel and his eyes fell on a huddle of these weirdos standing quite close by. They were whispering excitedly together. Mr. Dursley was enraged to see that a couple of them weren't young at all. Why, why that man had to be older than he was, and wearing an emerald green cloak. The nerve of him! But then it struck Mr. Dursley that this was probably some silly stunt. These people were obviously collecting for something. Yes, that would be it. The traffic moved on, and a few minutes later, Mr. Dursley arrived in the Grunnings parking lot, his mind back on drills. Mr. Dursley always sat with his back to the window in his office on the ninth floor. If he hadn't, he might have found it harder to concentrate on drills that morning. He didn't see the owls swooping past in broad daylight, though people down in the street did. They pointed and gazed open-mouthed as owls as owl after owl sped overhead. Most of them had never seen an owl, even at night time. Mr. Dursley, however, had a perfectly normal, owl-free morning. He yelled at five different people, he made several important telephone calls, and shouted a bit more. He was in a very good mood, until lunchtime, when he thought he'd stretch his legs and walk across the road to buy himself a bun from the bakery. He'd forgotten all about the people in cloaks until he passed a group of them next to the bakers. He eyed them angrily as he passed. He didn't know why, but they made him uneasy. This bunch were whispering excitedly, and he couldn't see a single collecting tin. It was on his way back past them, clutching a large donut in a bag, that he caught a few words of what they were saying. The potters! That's right! That's what I heard. Yes, their son, Harry. Mr. Dursley stopped dead. Fear flooded him. He looked back at the whisperers as if he wanted to say something to them, but he thought better of it. He dashed back across the road, hurried up to his office, snapped at his secretary not to disturb him, seized his telephone and almost finished dialing his home number when he changed his mind. He put the receiver back down and stroked his moustache, thinking. No, he was being stupid. Potter wasn't such an unusual name. He was sure there were lots of people called Potter who had sons called Harry. Come to think of it, he wasn't even sure that was his nephew's name, that his nephew was called Harry. He'd never even seen the boy. It might have been Harvey or Harold. There was no point in worrying Mrs. Dursley. She always got upset at any mention of her sister, and he didn't blame her. If he'd had a sister like that, but all the same, those people in cloaks. He found it a lot harder to concentrate on drills that afternoon, and when he left the building at five o'clock, he was still so worried that he walked straight into someone just outside the door. Sorry, he grunted, as the tiny old man stumbled and almost fell. It was a few seconds before Mr. Dursley realized that the man was wearing a violet cloak. He didn't seem at all upset at being knocked to the ground. On the contrary, his face split into a wide smile and he said in a squeaky voice that made passerbys stare. Don't be sorry, my dear sir, for nothing could upset me today. Rejoice, for you know who has gone at last. Even muggles like yourself should be celebrating this happy, happy day. And the old man hugged Mr. Dursley around the middle and walked off. Mr. Dursley stood rooted to the spot. He had been hugged by a complete stranger. He also thought he'd been called a muggle, whatever that was. He was rattled. He hurried to his car and set off for home, hoping he was imagining things which he had never hoped before, 
because he did not approve of imagination. As he pulled into the driveway of number four, the first thing that he saw, and it didn't improve his mood, was the tabby cat he spotted that morning. It was now sitting on his garden wall, and he was sure it was the same one. It had the same markings around its eyes. Shoo! said Mr. Dursley loudly. The cat didn't move. It just gave him a stern look. Was this normal cat behaviour? Mr. Dursley wondered, trying to pull himself together. He let himself into the house. He was still determined not to mention anything to his wife. Mrs. Dursley had had a nice day, normal day. She told him over dinner all about Miss Nextdoor's problems with her daughter and how Dudley learned a new word, won't. Mr. Dursley tried to act normally. When Dudley had been put to bed, he went into the living room in time to catch the last report on the evening news. And finally, bird watchers everywhere have reported that the nation's owls have been behaving very unusually today. Although owls normally hunt at night and are hardly ever seen in daylight, there have been hundreds of sightings of these birds flying in every direction since sunrise. Experts are unable to explain why the owls have suddenly changed their sleeping patterns. The newscaster allowed himself a grin. Most mysterious, and now over to Jim McGuffin with the weather. Going to be more showers of owls tonight, Jim? Well, Ted, said the weatherman, I don't know about that, but it's not only the owls that have been acting oddly today. Viewers as far apart as Kent, Yorkshire, and Dundee have been phoning in to tell me that instead of the rain I promised yesterday, they've had a downpour of shooting stars. Perhaps people have been celebrating bonfire night early. It's not until next week, folks, but I can promise a wet night tonight. So here's here's something that's that's kind of fun. Do you know what bonfire night is? I don't. So, actually. So bonfire night is like the fourth of July for England. Oh, okay. It's actually a uh, reason for it is just fun. Guy Fawkes. Oh, okay. So they're now Bonfire Night itself, I don't remember what date it is, but it's a part of the same revolution. I think that it is November 5th. I think that is. I could be wrong. I don't remember exactly what date it is. But it's because of that same revolution. It's a time when people burned their their paintings of the king. It's called Bonfire Night. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, very interesting. And did, did Dudley's new word actually say shant or don't? Because won't. it won't, because it says shan't in here. Yeah, and here it says won't. Yeah, that's right. So, There's been like a few things that so are a little different. Shan't might be, um, <laughs> because they they changed a lot of the language for the localization. So this might be the philosopher's stone wording, mm -hmm. and this might be the sorcerer's stone wording, because when they localized it for America, they changed a lot of the language. Got it. Interesting. So I wonder why. Because Americans complain constantly about uh, British English, almost as much it. as the British complain about American English. <laughs> <That's so stupid. laughs> all right, whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> Mr. Dursley sat frozen in his armchair, shooting stars all over Britain, owls flying by daylight, mysterious people in cloaks all over the place, and a whisper, a whisper about a potter. Mrs. Dursley came into the living room carrying two cups of tea. It was no good. He'd have to say something to her. He cleared his throat nervously. <clears throat> Petunia, dear, have you heard from your sister lately? Ha you haven't heard from your sister lately, have you? As he had expected, Mrs. Dursley looked shocked and angry. After all, they normally pretended she didn't have a sister. No. She said sharply. Why? Funny stuff on the news, Mr. Dursley mumbled. Owls and shooting stars. And there were funny people, funny looking people in town today. I don't know what my accent is for <laughs> Mr. Dursley. I was going to give him a Cockney one and then it's just kind of gone back and forth between Irish and posh. <laughs> <clears throat> so? Snapped Mrs. Dursley. Well, I just thought maybe it was something to do with, you know, 
her crowd. Mrs. Dursley sipped her tea through pursed lips. Mr. Dursley wondered whether he dared tell her he'd heard the name Potter. He decided he didn't dare. Instead, he said, as casually as he could, Their son, he'd be about Dudley's age now, wouldn't he? I suppose so, said Mrs. Dursley stiffly. What was his name again? Howard, isn't it? Harry. Nasty common name, if you ask me. It's funny because there were two princes named Harry around the time that this is supposedly taking place. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, said Mr. Dursley, his heart sinking horribly. Yes, I quite agree. He didn't say another word on the subject as they went upstairs to bed. While Mrs. Dursley was in the bathroom, Mr. Dursley crept to the bedroom window and peered down into the front garden. The cat was still there. It was staring down Privet Drive as though it were waiting for something. Was he imagining things? Could all this have something to do with the Potters? If it did, if it got out that they were related to a pair of... Well, he didn't think he could bear it. The Dursleys got into bed. Mrs. Dursley fell asleep quickly, but Mr. Dursley lay awake, turning it all over in his mind. His last comforting thought before he fell asleep was that even if the Potters were involved, there was no reason for them to come near him and Mrs. Dursley. The Potters knew very well that he and Petunia thought what he and Petunia thought about them in their kind, and he couldn't see how he and Petunia could get mixed up in anything that might be going on. He yawned and turned over. It couldn't affect them. How very wrong he was. Mr. Dursley might have been drifting into an uneasy sleep, but the cat on the wall outside was showing no signs of sleepiness. It was sitting still as a statue, its eyes fixed unblinkingly on the far corner of Privet Drive. It didn't so much as quiver when a car door slammed on the next street, nor when two owls swooped overhead. In fact, it was nearly midnight before the cat moved at all. A man appeared on the corner the cat had been watching, appeared so suddenly and silently, you'd have thought he'd just popped out of the ground. The cat's tail twitched and its eyes narrowed. Nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. He was tall, thin, and very old, judging by the silver of his hair and beard, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He was wearing long robes, a purple cloak that swept to the ground, and high-heeled buckled shoes. His blue eyes were light, bright, and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles, and his nose was very long and crooked, as though it had been broken at least twice. This man's name was Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore didn't seem to realise that he had just arrived in a street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcomed. He was busy rummaging in his cloak, looking for something, but, it, but he did seem to realise that he was being watched because he looked up suddenly at the cat, which was still staring at him from the other end of the street. For some reason, the sight of the cat seemed to amuse him. He chuckled and muttered, I should have known. He found what he was looking for in his inside pocket. It seemed to be a silver cigarette lighter. He flicked it open and held it up in the air and clicked it. The nearest street lamp went out with a little pop. He clicked it again. The next lamp flickered into darkness. Twelve times he clicked the put-outer, until only lights left on the whole street were two tiny pinpricks in the distance, which were the eyes of the cat watching him. If anyone looked out of their window now, even beady-eyed Mrs. Dursley, they wouldn't be able to see anything that was happening down on the pavement. Dumbledore slipped the put-outer back inside his cloak and set off down the street towards number four, where he sat down on the wall next to the cat. He didn't look at it, but after a moment he spoke to it. Fancy seeing you here, Professor McGonagall. 
He turned to smile at the tabby, but it had gone. Instead, he was smiling at a rather severe-looking woman who was wearing square glasses, exactly the shape of the markings the cat had had around its eyes. She, too, was wearing a cloak, an emerald one. Her black hair was drawn into a tight bun. She looked distinctly ruffled. How did you know it was me? She asked. My dear professor, I've never seen a cat sit so stiffly. You'd be stiff if you'd been sitting on a brick wall all day, said Professor McGonagall. All day? When you should have been celebrating? I must have passed a dozen feasts and parties on my way here. Professor McGonagall sniffed angrily. Oh yes, everyone's celebrating all right, she said impatiently. You'd think they'd be a bit more careful, but no, even the muggles have noticed something's going on. It was on their news. She jerked her head back at the Dursley's dark living room window. I heard it. Flocks of owls, shooting stars. Well, they're not completely stupid. They were bound to notice something. Shooting stars down in Kent. I'll bet that was Dedalus Diggle. He never had much sense. You can't blame them said Dumbledore gently. We've had precious little to celebrate over the years. I know that, said Professor McGonagall irritably. But that's no reason to lose our heads. People are being downright careless. Out on the streets in broad daylight, not even dressed in muggle clothes, swapping rumours. She threw a sharp sideways glance at Dumbledore here, as though hoping he was going to tell her something, but he didn't. So she went on. Fine thing it would be if, on the very day you-know-who seems to have disappeared at last, the Muggles found out all about us. I suppose he really has gone, Dumbledore. It does seem so, said Dumbledore. We have much to be thankful for. Would you care for a lemon drop? A what? A lemon drop. They're a kind of Muggle sweet I'm rather fond of. No, thank you said Professor McGonagall coldly, as though she didn't think this was the very moment for lemon drops. <laughs> as I say, even if you know who has gone... My dear Professor, surely a sensible person like yourself can call him by his name. This you-know-who nonsense. For eleven years, I have been trying to persuade people to call him by his proper name. Voldemort. Professor McGonagall flinched, but Dumbledore, who was unsticking two lemon drops, seemed not to notice. It all gets so confusing. If we keep saying you know who, I have never seen any reason to be frightened of saying Voldemort's name. I know you haven't, said Professor McGonagall, sounding half exasperated, half admiring. But you're different. Everyone knows you're the only one you know. Oh, all right, Voldemort was frightened of. You flatter me, said Dumbledore calmly. Voldemort had powers I will never have. Only because you're too, well, noble to use them. It's lucky it's dark. I haven't blushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told me she liked my new earmuffs. Professor McGonagall shot a sharp look at Dumbledore and said, The owls are nothing to the rumours that are flying around. You know what everyone's saying about why he's disappeared, about what finally stopped him. It seemed that Professor McGonagall had reached the point she was most anxious to discuss, and the real reason she had been waiting on a cold, hard wall all day. For neither as a cat nor as a woman had she fixed Dumbledore with such a piercing stare as she did now. It was plain that whatever everyone was saying, she was not going to believe it until Dumbledore told her it was true. Dumbledore, however, was choosing another lemon drop and did not answer. What they're saying, she pressed on, is that last night, Voldemort turned up in Godric's Hollow. He went to find the Potters. The rumor is that Lily and James Potter are, are, that they're dead. 
Dumbledore bowed his head. Professor McGonagall gasps. Lily and James, I can't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. Oh, Albus. Dumbledore reached out and patted her on the shoulder. I know, I know, he said heavily. Professor McGonagall's voice trembled as she went on. That's not all. They're saying he tried to kill the Potter's son, Harry, but he couldn't. He couldn't kill that little boy. No one knows why or how, but they're saying that when he couldn't kill Harry Potter, Voldemort's power somehow broke, and that's why he's gone. Dumbledore nodded glumly. It's... It's... Oh, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> it's true? Faltered Professor McGonagall. After all he's done, all the people he's killed, he couldn't kill a little boy. It's just astounding, of all things to stop him. But how in the name of heaven did Harry survive? We can only guess, said Dumbledore. We may never know. Professor McGonagall pulled out a lace handkerchief and dabbed at her eyes beneath her spectacles. Dumbledore gave a great sniff as he took a golden watch from his pocket and examined it. It was a very odd watch. It had 12 hands, but no numbers. Instead, little planets were moving around the edge. They must have made sense to Dumbledore though, because he put it back in his pocket and said, Hagrid's late. I suppose it was he who told you I'd be here, by the way. Yes, said Professor McGonagall. And I don't suppose you're going to tell me why you're here, of all places. I've come to bring Harry to his aunt and uncle. They're the only family he has left now. You don't mean... You can't mean the people who live here. Cried Professor McGonagall, jumping to her feet and pointing at number four. Dumbledore, you can't. I've been watching them all day. You couldn't find two people who are less... Like us. And they've got this son. I saw him kicking his mother all the way up the street, screaming for sweets. Harry Potter, come and live here. It's the best place for him, said Dumbledore firmly. His aunt and uncle will be able to explain everything to him when he's older. I've written them a letter. A letter? Repeated Professor McGonagall faintly, sitting back down on the wall. Really? Dumbledore, you think you can explain all this in a letter? These people will never understand him. He'll be famous. A legend. I wouldn't be surprised if today he was known as Harry Potter Day in the future. There will be books written about Harry. Every child in our world will know his name. Exactly, said Dumbledore, looking very seriously over the top of his half-moon glasses. It would be enough to turn any boy's head. Famous before he can walk and talk. Famous for something he won't even remember. Can't you see how much better off he'll be, growing up, up, up away from all of that, until he's ready to take it? Professor McGonagall opened her mouth, changed her mind, swallowed, and then said, Yes, yes, you're right, of course. But how's the boy getting here, Dumbledore? She eyed his cloak, suddenly as though she thought he might be hiding Harry underneath it. Hagrid is bringing him. You think it wise to trust Hagrid with something as important as this? I would trust Hagrid with my life, said Dumbledore. I'm not saying his heart isn't in the right place, said Professor McGonagall grudgingly. But you can't pretend he's not careless. He does tend to... what was that? A low, rumbling sound had broken the silence around them. It grew steadily louder as they looked up and down the street for some sign of a headlight. It swelled to a roar as they both looked up at the sky. A huge motorcycle fell out of the air and landed on the road in front of them. If the motorcycle was huge, it was nothing to the man sitting astride it. He was almost twice as tall as a normal man, and at least five times as wide. He looked simply too big to be allowed, 
and so wild. Long tangles of bushy black hair and beard hid most of his face. He had hands the size of trash can lids and his feet were in leather boots. In their leather boots were like baby dolphins. <laughs> Such a weird metaphor. In his vast muscular arms, he was holding a muddle of blankets. Hagrid, said Dumbledore, sounding relieved. At last, where did you get that motorcycle? I borrowed it, Professor Dumbledore, sir, said the giant, climbing carefully off the motorcycle as he spoke. Young Sirius Black lent it to me. I've got him, sir. No problems were there. No, sir. House was almost destroyed. But I got him out all right before the muggles started swarming around. He fell asleep as we were flying over Bristol's. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall bent forward over the bundle of blankets. Inside, just visible, was a baby boy, fast asleep. Under a tuft of jet black hair over his forehead, they could see a curiously shaped cut like a bolt of lightning. Is that where? Whispered Professor McGonagall. Yes, said Dumbledore. He'll have that scar forever. Couldn't you do something about it, Dumbledore? Even if I could, I wouldn't. Scars can come in handy. I have one myself on my left knee that is a perfect map of the London Underground. Well, give him here, Hagrid. We'd better get this over with. Dumbledore took Harry into his arms and turned towards the Dursley's house. Could I, could I say goodbye to him, sir? Asked Hagrid. He bent over his great shaggy head over Harry and gave him what must have been a very scratchy, whiskery kiss. Then suddenly, Hagrid let out a howl like a wounded dog. Shh! Hissed Professor McGonagall. You'll wake the muggles! So sorry! Sobbed Hagrid, taking out a large spotted handkerchief and burying his face in it. But I can't stand it. Little Anne, Lily and James did. And poor little Harry, I've delivered the muggles. Yes, yes, it's all very sad. But get a grip on yourself, Hagrid, or we'll be found. Professor McGonagall whispered, patting Hagrid gingerly on the arm as Dumbledore stepped over the low garden wall and walked to the front door. He laid Harry gently on the doorstep and took a letter out of his cloak, tucked it into Harry's blankets, and then came back to the other two. For a full minute, the three of them stood and looked at the little bundle. Hagrid's shoulders shook, Professor McGonagall blinked furiously, and the twinkling light that usually shone in Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have gone out. Well, said Dumbledore finally, that's that. We've no business staying here. We may as well go and join the celebrations. Yeah, said Hagrid in a very muffled voice. I best get the bike back anyway. Good night, Professor McGonagall. Professor Dumbledore, sir. Wiping his streaming eyes on his jacket, Hagrid swung himself onto the motorcycle and kicked the engine into life. With a roar, it rose into the air and off into the night. I shall see you soon, I expect, Professor McGonagall, said Dumbledore, nodding to her. Professor McGonagall blew her nose in reply. Dumbledore turned and walked back down the street. On the corner he stopped, took out the silver put-outer, and clicked it once, and twelve balls of light sped back to their street lamps so the privet drive glowed suddenly orange and he could make out a tabby cat slinking around the corner at the other end of the street. He could see the bundle of blanket on the step of number four. Good luck, Harry, he murmured. He turned on his heel and with a swish of his cloak, he was gone.
A breeze ruffled the neat hedges of Privet Drive, which lay silent and tidy under the inky sky. The very last place you would expect astonishing things to happen. Harry Potter rolled over inside his blankets without waking up. One small hand closed on the letter beside him, and he slept on, not knowing he was special, not knowing he was famous, not knowing that he would be awoken in a few hours by Mrs. Dursley's screams as she opened the front door to put out the milk bottles, nor that he would spend the next few weeks being prodded and pinched by his cousin Dursley. He couldn't know that this, at this very moment, People meeting in secret all over the country were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices, To Harry, Harry Potter, Potter, the, the boy, boy who lived. lived. And thus ends chapter one. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I, I point out to people when we're talking about, like how she's, she's not very grammatically uh, complex in the way that she writes. Well, Just she's in this for kids. Right, but just in this chapter, she uses had had three times. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's little things like that. Like once they get to school, somebody did a count, and I don't remember exactly what it is, but she uses the, the transitionary phrase, they got up to stretch their legs, or some variation of that. Just in the first three books, it's like, it's like 80 or 90 times. Like, she uses it a lot. To get up and stretch their legs? Yeah, like, they get up to stretch mm -hmm. their legs, or they went out to stretch their legs, or they, or they went to take a walk. Some variation of that is a transitionary phrase for scenes. She uses it a lot. It sounds like something that should have been addressed in like the revising stage. Because usually, like, if you're writing it bit by bit, sometimes you forget what you've used. So it's not until you like read it all together, like, oh, I, I've used this too many times. I need to change this around. Right. Maybe she didn't care to do that. <laughs> and nobody cared to point it out to her. Apparently not. Yeah. But this is also a great section where we see uh, the first example of her world, world building. Right. Because you get this, this whole... You really get the gravity for why this is why what Mr. Dursley sees is so bad, but we don't we don't see it until the end of the chapter mm -hmm. when we get the more intimate connection with McGonagall and Dumbledore and Hagrid. And this like th there's a whole whole chapter of the Dursleys seeing and hearing strange things, but it's it's this little bit between Dumbledore and McGonagall that gives us the world-building aspect of it, of how and why this is a bad thing. Right. And that really gives you a, a frame for the rest of the world as to how big a deal it is that muggles and wizards stay separated. How, how big a deal that, that delineation is. Mm -hmm. And that is spectacular world-building, and it's done in such a simplistic way. It's really, really well done. And she keeps interest by putting in some of the more fun things like it's not outright explained every time but you know that professor mcgonagall is a shapeshifter mm -hmm. you know she turns into the cat he has an interesting watch you're not entirely sure what it means right he has a, a put outer <laughs> right <laughs> that captures light and then well, can put it back and this is one of the this is one of the other things that and she gets better with this in later books but where where she'll give something a name. <laughs> yeah, it's really obvious, but and then it's and then fun. other things we don't get the names for. Right. Whereas the the more the more keen way of doing that would be having the characters reveal that themselves mm. and not doing it in the narration because doing it in the narration sort of like breaks the immersion in the story. It can sometimes. Like I don't think it was so bad in this instance because she did. And again, put it this is for children. This is for children. Yeah, so. it is for children. But it would also be annoying if everything got explained through characters, because I've seen that happen sometimes, and it just feels really out of place because the character would not be talking about something like that at length for right. no reason. In in this instance, <laughs> in this instance, uh, the only way for it to be done would not have worked well in the character dialogue yeah 
Um, and that's what I mean. And she didn't say it is a put outer. It's she just put he used the put outer to do right. this thing. So, and I think that's fine. But you know, maybe in, there will be another instance where where that happens. Well, but and they and they create they it creates whimsy by by not letting us know what it is. Mm -hmm. Right, and then maybe bringing it up later on. The only way that this could have been seamlessly worked in um, would be if Dumbledore had made like a joke to McGonagall, um, where he like like held it up and was like, "You would have been stuck as a cat if you if you you know because you didn't have a put out or like you know right. something like and that." He, he was already being inappropriate light, inappropriately light with his conversation, considering the gravity of the situation. Right. So that it probably would have been too much. But another thing that I noticed where uh, where you were reading lemon drops, I guess in the original they called them lemon sherbets mm -hmm. or sherbet lemons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, yeah, and a lot of a lot of sweet candies over in 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 Europe are called like sherbets or lollies or something of the like. Mm -hmm. So if it's something that you suck yeah, on, yeah, it kind of reminded me of the original movie for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right. I think they made some references like that because they also were in England. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that they felt the need to change some of those things. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. But. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in locals. It's like the whole the Pokemon thing, mm -hmm. where they they have, for for two whole seasons of Pokemon, they're eating onigiri rice. Right. But the localization for the for Americans call them donuts, and every <laughs> child on donuts. the planet. Every child on the planet's like, that's not a donut. You can clearly see that it's like a triangle-shaped, <laughs> like, you know, thing of rice um, with like the seaweed on it so you can hold it. What's funny so is that the first funny. time that I saw that as a kid, I actually asked my mom about it. Mm -hmm. And my mom had no idea what onigiri rice same, was. Same with mine. I ended up having to look it up later. So my mom and my, so my mom just said, oh, it was probably a jelly donut. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Well, and it's, it's, it's little things like that that also make the story. I think that the original, because later on, I don't think that she actually localized anything. She just wrote them for the national audience. So I don't think there's a, dis a difference after the third book mm. in the language. I'm not 100% sure if that's true, but... I it, guess we'll find out. Huh? Yeah. And yeah, it's, just, it's, really, it's really interesting, the difference between the Philosopher's Stone version and the Sorcerer's Stone version, there's there's even some differences in the the way that the story ends. Mm -hmm. The original, because she rewrote it for the mass publication. There were some rewrites that happened for the mass publication. I have an original version of the Philosopher's Stone somewhere. I don't know where it is. <laughs> but it would be interesting in to see exactly what the big big differences were between the two yeah that would be interesting actually maybe we'll be able to find it but i did also like how she established the dursleys very strongly you just know right off the bat that they're they find the the other world and those other people to be so abhorrent that mr dursley was constantly trying to justify the weird things that he saw right <laughs> Well, and that's what I mean, is like her, her world building is better than her plot progressing because in that instance she built the past of the Dursleys, because that's not mm -hmm. like a that's not like a current Dursley thing as much as it is an, an exemplification of regular behaviors. Just like how so they the, are, that's right. their personality. So but... that th she does such a great job of building up who they were up to that point using those details, even with the, oh, Mrs. Dursley loves to be in everybody else's business, but she doesn't like for anybody to be in her business. Because mm -hmm. they, they talked, like she emphasized it over and over again, mm -hmm. how mortified they would be if anybody found out right. about the Potters. You gotta and that. keep up appearances. But her, entire, yeah, but her entire personality is about being in everyone else's business. So there's that, it's setting you up for them to be massive hypocrites mm -hmm. in regards to Harry, but also... They, they they just are completely resistant to any kind of change, violently resistant to a point that they they'll hurt themselves right. to keep change from happening, and it's it it's such good world building, and that's why these books did so well. That's why they did better than any other series that was coming out at that time, because even though Polini was great with his world building, his world building is not as good as Rowling's is. Hmm. 
so it doesn't have that same that same establishment in whimsy that is what drew people in because most what i was gonna say i'm like whimsical is kind of the key word there yeah and people loved that i remember you know when the first like steady job i got was working at borders and everyone was just going crazy over harry potter books every time that they came out it was nuts well, and I, I remember that when, before there was any sort of merchandising around Harry Potter, which they didn't start merchandising stuff until, until after, what was it? Until after the, this, the first movie had come out. I think so, because it, the movie did so well. Right. Right. And they weren't expecting it to. Right. The movie was supposed to be a flop. Because a lot of fantasy movies didn't right. do well. I watched Aragon, mm -hmm. the movie. Which was terrible. And it was. But still, there was a part of me at that age that I was like, I still want them to make the other ones because it was so rare to get a good fantasy movie. It just, rare, it just didn't happen. Right. They didn't put that much effort into it. So you're like, well, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you had Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But... That was different. You didn't have George Lucas doing any more fantasy stuff. He did Willow. Well, yeah, you had... And that was a good fantasy You had movie. Willow, you had Star Wars, and you had Star Trek. Yeah. Which were about as whimsical as we got. And then you had the animated Hobbit films. Right. And then you had Lord of the Rings. Which, and the animated Hobbit films will definitely give you nightmares. Right. It didn't to me because I was a weird kid, but I'm pretty sure there were plenty of, of people that were... There was a massive, it was like a massive trend of children's animated films being just nightmare fuel. Yeah. Like Fern Gully. Fern, I loved Fern Gully. I loved Fern Gully too. The Last Unicorn. The Last people, Unicorn, Like that yeah. harpy scene. Mm. Like that was Or Or, or even the, them being driven into the sea scene. Right, that. A lot of that, people had trouble with. Right, and the, the uh, talking skeleton... Uh, Watership uh, Down. Watership Down was traumatizing, but that, to be fair, that content was actually more adult. Yeah. And it was just guys. Well, but what about books. what about Secret of Nim? Secret of Nim, it had serious topic, but yeah, it, I think it's geared towards family. I don't know that that was traumatizing. Like maybe if there was, you know, like <laughs> the children actually drowned in the mud, then it would have been very traumatizing. But they lived. They're so, fine. Everyone's good. <laughs> Do you, do you do you remember an animated film called Fire and Ice? No. Okay, so it was very much intended, like, way ahead of its time, but it was intended to be an adult movie, mm. but it was animated. So because it was an adult movie, but it was animated, it got labeled as, like, a children or families film. For, and it's literally, like, about Conan-era barbarians and shamans. And so... It's... So it ends up being like a really inappropriate subject matter. It's a good movie. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. And it was way ahead of its time. But so many people thought it was a children's film because it was animated. And that's common. I don't... There was a weird transitionary period for animation. It's definitely off topic as far as Harry Potter's concerned. <laughs> well, there are still but... people today who think, oh, it's animated, it's a kid's thing. Right, but but when animation was created and being developed and growing, it was geared towards adults. It was for adults. It cost a lot of money and took a lot of time to make these things. It was right. revolutionary and, and inventive. It was made for adults. It ended up being very obvious that kids would get drawn to it, so then they started making stuff that was geared specifically towards kids, but it was originally for adults, and we still have adult animations. Um, and and that same problem happened with Japanese animation. You know, there were definitely some inappropriate titles that made its way to the U.S. that should not have been <laughs> they, they in, sat in the, in the block normal buster. section. So yeah. <laughs> Be aware of what you are renting or what your children are renting before you let them watch it. If you're watching, especially if it's coming from Japan. Yes, if you're listening to this from the '90s, this is a message for you. <laughs> so in case, in case there's a blockbuster anywhere. Yes. So, uh, but, but yeah. there's there's a lot of other people, you know, especially J uh, in Japan culture, they have animations for every age group. And well, some very adult ones. And even think about even think about the non-animated films, because obviously Harry Potter's not an animated film, but think right. about the non-animated films that were intended for children. They had a really hard time of, of locking down whimsy mm -hmm. without it being nightmarish. 
Like, look at uh, the never-ending story. The first two never-ending story films are like, most kids look back at them and they're like, the, the, the horse he died. Like, that's all anybody remembers from... He lived at the end. But yes, that scene, like, it doesn't have the same impact to an adult mm-hmm. as it does a child because the child is still very emotional and will very quickly get attached to characters. Right. So when that happened, it's devastating. And yeah, Well, was, and the writers very intentionally, like, they gave the horse, like, a, a really cool name. Archie, and they... And they and they made it so that he was in a in a very like intimate friendship with the main character. Right. Like they did it on purpose because they were gonna kill him off. <laughs> it was really good, and even the message of it, like some of it, I think was beyond what children could understand. Oh, all of it was beyond what children can understand. But it had a really good message. It did. It was a great movie, and definitely different from the book. But it was a great movie. I loved that one. Uh, Dark Crystal was really creepy, but I loved that one too. <laughs> I remember, I remember that the Skeksis were probably one of the first things that I actually like had nightmares about from a movie. Did you? <laughs> and the reason why is because there was another film because my my dad loved horror movies, and that's why mm. my my sister loves horror films now too. And my sister watches the most inappropriate horror movies with her sons. Like she has two boys, and she watches the most. She like watches like Chucky and all of these. With her kids and it's definitely not great but they're also afraid of nothing now like they <laughs> these kids are afraid of nothing desensitized <laughs> i don't know if that's really a good thing but but there was a film called uh called house mm-hmm. and uh I, i've never gone back and watched it again but it's essentially like this guy his wife leaves him because their son ends up um drowning in their pool but they never recover his body after he drowns in the pool. Hmm. So like his body disappears and... How did uh, they know he drowned in the pool? They just, I don't know. They, they, I, I don't remember the full plot of the story. Uh-huh. That This is what I remember of it. Okay. But then at some point, um, he, he, he basically realizes that the house is haunted. And um, there's a point where he's like in a hallucination with his ex-wife. And she turns into this freaky monster, and the the freak it looked like a fat, like a fat female version of something from the Dark Crystal movies, like either the the uh, and I actually don't remember if it was from Labyrinth or from Dark Crystal, but like it just looked like a fat version of one of the like evil characters from either Dark Crystal or Labyrinth. So after that, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, for a while, like, those movies specifically would not give me nightmares, but they would spark nightmares about the movie House. That's funny. (laughs) And after that, I was always afraid of the dark. And even to this day, I still get, like, the willies in the dark, but I just remind myself, I'm like, you're bigger than just about anything that could attack you, so. Can't let people know. All monsters are under four foot tall, canonically, we know that. (laughs) Right. You're gonna have some people go. Wait, what? He's not four feet tall. I am. Four, I'm four foot three, canonically. Right, right with uh, a fake measuring tape that's been altered. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, do you have anything else? I think we're good. I mean, we had a pretty long first episode. Yeah, and uh, the, the, many of you will be also happy to know that Dark Tales will be having a resurgence as well. My brother is coming back, and we are going to be kicking back off on The Witcher where we left off. Um, I've got two unreleased episodes somewhere that I need to edit. They're just put waiting? Up. Yeah. Weird. Well, because okay. we, we, our, our, our recording schedule got nuked. Right. So I was like, I'm not going to release these until I know that we're going to be recording regularly again. And they're just sitting in a folder somewhere. And I, All I, right. Well, we're kicking things up again. So I'll be helping with the family titles and... Mr. Smith will be back to help with the Witcher series and get that done. Mm-hmm. And also, this is going to be recorded on video, and it will be on Patreon, so you can stare at us while we read. That kind of sounds creepy, but I don't know. Maybe you're into it. Uh, some we'll people put some just like to watch. It. Yeah. <laughs> For the children listening. That's a joke about movies. Right. We'll put some imagery in it. It won't just be us. We'll put some imagery. I'll see if I can 
get some shots of the illustrations that are in the illustrated book so it can go along with some of the parts, uh, poignant parts in the chapters. So should be enjoyable and hopefully we'll see you there at Patreon where you get early access to this stuff and you get extra behind the scenes stuff and access to all of the podcasts and other videos that aren't even related to Endless Epic. It's just stories from from lore. So there's a lot on there if you want to check it out and you can help us pick new titles and join in on our discussions. Yep. And uh, yeah, so we should be back to, right now we're going to be doing a bi-weekly release for the podcast. Um, and in a month or so, we'll be back to a weekly release on the podcast. So to kick off uh, next month, which is August, mm-hmm. August will be a bi, uh, bi-weekly. So every two weeks we'll be releasing, uh, so it's bi-monthly, I'm sorry. Bi-monthly we'll be releasing two, um, one every two weeks. We'll be releasing one every two weeks. <laughs> Yeah, I'm confusing everyone. (laughs) Every two weeks you can expect a new episode of both Dark Tales and uh, Endless Epic. And then we will bump it up to every week. Yes. Yes. This is how it's going to go. Right. That's correct. (laughs) So, storytellers, seekers, and adventurers, thank you so much once again for joining us here in this Endless Epic. And we hope that you will join us the next time we turn the page. And until next time, stay bloodthirsty, my friends, and remember, all hail. And then we're supposed to do this. Close the book. And that's it. And wave to the people watching. This will be the first, like, actual good video podcast we've ever had for them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, we didn't do a shout-out for Jaeger. Oh, oh, oh. I'll put this back at the beginning. Hey, guys. Um, shout out to Ironside Jaeger, who's both a patron and a major chad in the, uh, the, the Discord and the community in general. The reason why the audio does not sound like trash is because he donated some really wonderful microphones. So thank him for that. Thank you. Everybody go and, and give him a kiss if you see him. Right. He deserves it. Big wet ones. Big wet ones. <laughs> All right. Love you guys. Bye-bye.